Jewish Latin Princess episode 56, Alison Josephs, founder of Jew in the City. You're listening to Jewish Latin Princess podcast by Yael. Every week, get your dose of inspiration from the world's most uniquely talented Jewish women and from Yael herself. Seeking profound and practical ways to live a joyful, richer Jewish life? Welcome to Jewish Latin Princess podcast. And now, Jewish lifestyle expert and bilingual blogger at jewishlatinprincess.com, your host, Yael. Question for you. Do you see a visibly Jewish-looking man with a kippah, peyot, and a beard and assume he's a rabbi or a diamond dealer? Or worse, a rock-throwing, women-subjugating extremist? Do you do a double-take when you find out that your new, smart, put-together, confident colleague is a Shabbat-observing, mikvah-going, wig-wearing Jewish woman? What? I thought they weren't allowed to work. She's so normal, you say. You're listening to Jewish Latin Princess. I'm Yael Trush, your host. My guest today is on a mission to break down these stereotypes and misconceptions surrounding Jewish orthodoxy and making vibrant, meaningful orthodoxy known to all people and all Jews. How bad are we at our own PR? If most of what we know and assume about Jewish orthodoxy is coming from what we read in the headlines, see in movies, and in episodes of Law & Order, then we still have a lot of work to do in this area. Work that Alison Josephs, founder of Jew in the City, has taken head-on for the past 10 years. How did she end up in the path of orthodoxy, and why did she decide to become vocal about the beautiful life she found and re-educate Jews about orthodoxy? And what about the Jews who grew up orthodox? What could Alison possibly offer them? These important questions and more answered today by Alison Josephs of Jew in the City. Josephs, welcome to Jewish Latin Princess. How are you? Thank God, I'm doing well. It's such a pleasure to connect with you and to have you on the show. Uh, I feel like we have we're two mythbusters in one room. Well, one virtual room, I guess. Exactly. Could we call ourselves mythbusters? I I, I know I could call you a mythbuster. <laughs> I try. Um, I definitely. Um, I never expected that the myths that we would be busting would have to actually be for Orthodox Jews as well. Um, when we started out, it was, it was supposed to be for people that had had learned less. So um, it's a little bit crazy to now 10 years into the sea that um, people can be raised, you know, with a good deal of Jewish education and observance and not know Judaism as well as they should. Um, but we sort of, you know, went where, you know, the people, the mission took us. So what a great point. I, that's, that's a great point. I'm glad you even started with that. So let's, why don't we, why don't you tell us what is the mission of Jew in the city? So um, it's actually a conversation I'm having right now with my board, um, because mm-hmm. 10 years into the organization, um, our initial, our initial, our original mission statement um, has kind of expanded because our work has expanded. So when we were founded um, back in 2007, the mission was breaking down stereotypes about religious Jews and offering a humorous, meaningful look into Orthodox Judaism. Okay. Uh, since then, in the last couple of years, last few years, we've gotten involved now with um, Orthodox Jews that were raised Orthodox and yet um, were raised without really a nuanced understanding of 
Judaism were raised without a positive um, connection or really experience with Judaism. And so now, most unfortunately, we've had to expand our work into re-educating Orthodox Jews about Orthodoxy. And so to try to, you know, come up with a mission statement that encompasses all of it, we're looking to something now like making vibrant and meaningful Orthodoxy known and accessible to all. Sorry, let me try that again because mm-hmm. we're doing it right now. Making <laughs> and meaningful orthodoxy known to old people and accessible to all Jews, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, what we're realizing now is that our job is twofold, both to educate, that it's it's meaningful, it's relevant, um, it's you know something positive in their lives, um, and that for anyone who is interested in the information that we put out there, that we should make sure that there are channels for them to achieve that type of lifestyle. Um, but it's, it's actually a very big uh, <laughs> sort of task that we've taken on. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that I hear you. And so, you know, you've accomplished so much in the last what, 11 years, right? You started somewhere around 20 2007? 2007, right? Yeah, well, I guess we're we're 10 and a half years into um our our work. Right. And like you said now, the evolution has led you it's 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 actually such a huge responsibility. Um was there ever a point where you felt like, "Whoa, my shoulders are not broad enough to carry this?" Or what in the world am I doing? Like, this is just insanity. How did I take this on? Oh, yeah, all the time. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, I think something that I sort of point out to my husband is that there's fewer female leaders in the Orthodox world. Mm-hmm. So, um, like, I remember at one point, like, I wrote like an op-ed that was like a front page article for the Jewish press and like the next week like Bibi Netanyahu did and I sort of felt like really and this was like eight years ago when like I had barely done anything mm-hmm. sometimes I sort of felt like is like is this it like is this the best that we have because that's kind of scary so I sometimes like get these moments of like I don't know too much I'm like not that good of a person like I try to be good but I feel like there's like there's hopefully better people out there than me and yet <laughs> Um, here I am in this role and meaning I took it on because um, I really what it comes down to ultimately is that I've my life has been so blessed by um, living a life of positive and meaningful and relevant orthodoxy mm-hmm. um, and I had a beautiful life before but it wasn't a meaningful life and so um, having Torah and mitzvahs in my life has just impacted it so positively in terms of just waking up every day um, and having so much gratitude and just sort of seeing the craziness of the world through a lens of something bigger than myself and having something to give over to my children when, you know, bad things and crazy things happen like every day. Um, so it's been such a positive force in my life that um, I really feel this fire to make sure that every Jew knows about this and has access to this if they want it. Um, but, you know, it's at the end of the day, I am still a Balchuva. I'm not the most learned person out there. I don't come from, you know, generations of, uh, mm-hmm. you know, scholars. And, and yet um, I, I, I have what I have, you know, and I, I, you know, I think I do have what to offer. And while it may not be, you know, um, in a perfect world, I might, you know, make this and that change. Ultimately, um, I think like a big part of life is just doing. And yes, so far too often people talk about, you know, what they will do, but those people don't end up doing. You you can't talk, you have to do. So that's what I I try to be a doer. And even if the setting isn't perfect, um, you have to just kind of work with what you have. Right. Uh, Amazing. But so so what was the I mean, there are many people who find meaning in Judaism as adults or, you know, later on in life, but you took it on 
to that you took it to the next level like you you said you you were driven to to bring this out to the world to communicate it but what was the impetus for you to say you know what even though i may be i don't know one might not think i may be the most cool whatever it is whatever the resistance would be i'm going to do this was there a point that you said i'm going to do this i'm going to start these videos i'm going to start a website was there a point that triggered that and you said this is what i'm meant to be doing yeah so um I was first working in Jewish outreach. Um, Really, after I became observant, um, I started, you know, trying to teach my family and friends and everyone around me. Mm -hmm. I felt like although I had been given every privilege and an incredible education, um, that this super important piece of life, which was basically the meaning of life, had been kept from me. Um, And I felt a little bit, um, I don't know, betrayed, I guess. Yeah, cheated a little bit. uh, Cheated Mm -hmm. that, um, you know, my parents wanted to, make this wonderful life for my sisters and me. And they never bothered getting around to telling us why we were alive. And when I asked them that, um, when I was eight years old, um, and I guess sort of what I should preface that with is that um, there was a triple murder in my childhood. A father in my school went crazy when I was eight and killed both of his children and himself. And so um, I walked into my fourth grade homeroom on a cold December morning and discovered that uh, one of my classmates had been murdered the night before. And um, besides the fact that it was, you know, horrific and, um, you know, tragic, um, it really opened up this Pandora's box for me about like, well, she wasn't expecting to be dead at 10. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know how long I have here and where do you go when this is all over? And, um, then I got to the sort of biggest question is what do you do before you get there? And I realized that my parents had never actually talked to us about why we're alive. We had all of these things we're supposed to fill our time with in this world to be successful and, you know, to collect things and to be a nice person and a good person. But then it was sort of like you spend your whole life sort of adding up, um, you know, education plus family plus career, sort of all these lines in the equation. And then you get to the equal sign and it ends up with a big zero because there's actually nothing that you hold on to after a lifetime of working. Yeah. Where was the mission behind all this? That didn't make any sense to me, even mm-hmm. as a child. And when I asked my parents, they just stared back at me, and I thought this is bad news. Um, and then mm-hmm. I went to teachers and friends and family members, and I realized that no one actually knew what they were doing here. Which just seemed like, how is this happening? Like, how is everyone just okay with sort of going through the motions of life, and no one is talking about what it leads up to? So. Um, I sort of put myself on this journey to discover what we were here for, except the World Wide Web hadn't been invented yet. So I was like eight and mm-hmm. nine and 10. And so I was losing sleep. I was having minor panic attacks. I was trying to not think about it, um, but it didn't really work because I kept coming back to it. Um, at 16 years old, I met the first Orthodox Jew I had ever gotten to know um, at an after-school Hebrew high program. Um, my parents just sent us to meet nice Jewish boys that we were supposed to have bacon cheeseburgers with. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then marry. <laughs> and then marry, exactly. Um, and then raise our kids, uh, you know, not eating any chametz on Pesach, but having um, milk and meat at our seders, which is how I was raised. Um, <laughs> and so it's very interesting. And then um, so this teacher, um, I was expecting him to be, you know, a rock-throwing women-subjugating extremist because that's how I understood <laughs> Orthodox Jews to be because I didn't know any in real life. Um, I only read about them in the headlines. I had only seen them, like, you know, in movies and Law and Order. Um, and so this guy wasn't actually um, extreme or, you know, backwards. He was actually nice and normal and thinking. Um, and 
what I realized is that his life wasn't all about the stuff he couldn't do. His life was actually pretty free um, and pretty enjoyable. And I was the one that was lacking. I was the one that was lacking meaning and purpose, which he had. He prayed every day. He had Shabbos. He had a belief in something higher than himself. Mm-hmm. So I slowly started to learn and grow and make changes in my life to become more observant. And everyone in my world was terrified of the cult that I had joined. They're going <laughs> to have 10 children. They're going to subjugate you. Um, and that thank God that didn't happen. Um, and so like I said at the beginning, when I discovered my birthright, I really felt so strongly that every Jew has the right to know who they are, where they come from. It's not just Jewish jokes. It's not just gefilte fish. It's not just how many doctors and lawyers we have, which was all the things that my mother tried to sort of raise us on to have Jewish pride. And she gave over what she knew because that was all she knew. And right. she, she did try to imbue in my sisters and me a sense of, you know, belonging to something important, but gefilte fish, you know, and Jewish jokes is not actually that important. Um, there's something far more important that we have. She just wasn't aware of. So, um, I felt that I wanted to get this message out there. And I was working at Partners in Torah for um, like five years, and I interviewed about 3,000 birthright alumni. Mm -hmm. And I was sort of, without realizing it, coming across the same myths and misconceptions. Uh, I would have a woman tell me, I had a great time in Israel. I would want to become more religious, but if I ever became Orthodox, I wouldn't be allowed to work. And I said, really? What (laughs) commandment is that? Or I had a guy tell me Israel was amazing. I feel so spiritual. But when we went to this religious community, they threw garbage on us. And I had to remind him that, you know, they may have dressed religious, but they didn't act religious. So um, I was sort of dealing with these misunderstandings um, without realizing that there was a bigger trend here. And sort of the... um, the aha moment was um, in 2005. Um, my young, my second daughter was, I don't know, six weeks old. Uh, a journalist from Spain mm-hmm. uh, was working on a story in Brooklyn. Um, and while she was working on the story, she was noticing all these Orthodox Jews around. I was very curious about them and hadn't seen them before because, well, you know, they kicked they us out of the country. So right. that's yet when you they ex- don't hang out in Spain. <laughs> when you expel an entire people, you don't get to see them as much. And so she wrote a, a post on Craigslist Would an Orthodox woman sit down with me for an interview. So a guy I knew from the Kiev world emailed me, had seen the post. He said, Quick, respond before some crazy person does. Mm-hmm. So I did. And she came over the next day. And from the moment she walked into our apartment, which had mustard colored walls and right. funky furniture, I could see the stereotypes melting away. The elephant after- in the room. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And um, after about three hours of mostly me talking, um, her mind was completely changed. She was expecting to find meek and frumpy and close-minded and uneducated and dirty. And um, mm-hmm. instead, she had met me. And the truth is that, like, I'm not an anomaly. Like, that, there's a ton of other people like me in the Orthodox world. But like we just never get any coverage. We just never get any exposure. Um, and really, um, the crooks, creeps, and extremists are the ones that rule the headlines because that's what the media knows and that's what the media likes to report on. Right. So after she left, I said to my husband, we are doing the worst job at PR. People just don't actually ever see the positives of our community. And I think this is sort of the missing link in the outreach movement. Uh, why would anybody want to explore more about Torah and mitzvot if they think the people that are sort of carrying it on are a bunch of lunatics? Um, so maybe what we need to do is start like a worldwide Orthodox image makeover campaign. Um, and then I said to myself, like, well, maybe I need to do this. And then it was sort of like, how do you do this? How? Like, I didn't have a background in PR or media. Um, and so... 
So that was one of those areas where, despite the fact that maybe I wasn't qualified, like on paper, um, sort of that drive and that fire behind the mission is really what fueled me to say, well, I don't have a formal background, but I've watched a lot of television, so probably I could, you know, figure out a way to to get some messaging out there. So um, right around that time, YouTube was coming onto the scene, and as a child, as I was having these very deep thoughts about life and existence, I was also having very shallow thoughts, which was, when am I going to get my own television show? Like, my mother raised us. Um, and I think it really comes to sort of like down to the secular um, model of success. Yes. If people know your name and see your face, you must you must matter. Even you if you must have made it, <laughs> even if it's for a horrible reason. Like people make these, you know, um, they make videos, um, different types of videos that are not so clean, or you know, they maybe are famous for being famous. We have some reality stars like that. Like they're not actually contributing in any way, um, and yet because people know about them, suddenly people care about them. So that was sort of the world that I was raised in. If my name is in lights, if my, you know, face is blown up somewhere, then that might matter. And my mother would tell us stories about, you know, P- Natalie Portman was discovered in this pizzeria and this kid from Hebrew school was discovered there. And so I had this like delusional idea that, you know, it's just a matter of time before a Hollywood scout finds me and, you know, <laughs> my next show. Um, so needless to say, that did not happen. And um, as I got older, I realized that that actually was foolish. And I just thought that that side of myself that sort of craved the spotlight, it's not actually such a nice part of oneself. Um, in fact, in, according to Judaism, it's actually a pretty lowly self to, to want attention. So I just thought that I would kind of just get rid of myself, get rid of that part of myself and mm-hmm. sort of like away and say, you know, that's a, a lesser level. Um, but what ended up happening was with YouTube coming to the scene where you could broadcast yourself, I realized that. I could take this side of myself and I could serve Hashem Bekola Vavcha. I could use yes. my Yisra'ara, um to um, to get out this mission and this message. But I think what's so important is that um, people that create content have to be mission-driven. Mm-hmm. Um, people that, you know, have written to me for advice and they've been like, I'm going to start a blog. What blog should I start? And I'm like, don't, <laughs> don't do it. No. And they're like, what do you mean? And I'm like, no, you need an idea. If you have an idea, if you have something you care about that you care to tell the world about that you care to share, then let's discuss what medium, what platform you're going to use to spread the information. But don't just start a blog because everyone has a blog. Like right. that's that's useless and we don't need any more noise. Um, and that's really like self-serving. Um, and that's something that I think you should run away from. If there is a purpose, if you have an angle, if there's a struggle that you went through, if there's a cause that you care about and are, you know, sort of uniquely passionate or um, sort of situated to speak about, well, then, you know, make as much noise as you can. But if you just want to make noise for the sake of being a noisemaker, um, then that's really not a Jewish idea. So um, I did have this passion and I did want to tell this story. I did want to share with other Jews about their birthright. And I did see that YouTube was a way to do it. And so I started filming these YouTube videos. um, And that was how Jew in the City began. I want to distill two such important messages that you've said here. I mean, number one, Ashkaha Pratis, understanding that there there was divine providence in in, in what happened and, and, and really internalizing that. One one minute, if this reporter, if I got the chance to change, you know, by Ashkaha Pratis, by divine providence, to talk to this woman for three hours, 
there is something here. God wants me to do something with this and, and I'm going to have to figure it out, right? I'm going to have to use whatever my resources are and whatever experience I have to do this because this is something I care about and it's important and which ties onto your second mes- message, which is mis- being mission driven and really doing things for a higher purpose and a higher goal and for serving Hashem and changing the world, obviously. So, um, really- the thing about Hashkacha Pratis is that you don't know that it's happening while it's happening. Meaning mm-hmm. like, the thing is that I could have just, um, I mean, sometimes like, you know, uh, the car doesn't hit you and like, that's a pretty clear Hashkacha Pratis, but meaning like the interview could have happened and I could have not just, done anything okay, with that. That was a good experience. And right. you know, uh, to go back to work tomorrow. Um, right. So I think it's it's not so clear, like meaning in terms of people who um, are saying like, what's my mission and how do I know what it is? It's not always so clear. Um, I think maybe more what I would say, yes, like it was important that the interview happened and I, I had sort of this aha moment. So sometimes you get these aha moments, but then I think really important thing is that do you do something with them? Right. Um, we don't always get to choose when we have our aha moments, but you know, do you, does it come and does it pass or, you know, do you find a way to, um, continue it into something bigger? So I think that's really the, um, an important thing. Like some people don't always like, you know, Jamie Geller, um, mm-hmm. who's someone that we've honored and she's a friend of mine. She mentioned that to me that, you know, she got her first break in uh, television by, someone's sister was at high holiday services when she was 14 and she saw her in the bathroom and she said, I want a job. And so she sort of, that was Hashkacha Pratis that, you know, this person that had these means to uh, a connection to, uh, you know, a sort of a harder place to get to was in her life. But then she, she took it. Right. She sort of took the moment to, um, do something about it, to be bold, to, you know, ask for a job in the bathroom, you know, on the high holidays. And then the woman said, okay, reach out in four years when you graduate. And she did. A hundred percent. It's like, it's yeah. recognizing when you have opportunity in your life. And it's doing. It's bold to do something. And then it's taking the necessary follow-up to make it happen. And not everybody um, is willing to do that, to sort of be so bold and to kind of stay so driven on what they care about. But I think that those are some of the qualities that, you know, can really help people. And so meaning like I could have looked at myself and said, like, I don't know PR. I don't know media. You know, I studied philosophy for all that was worth. Um, what a, Like, what right do I have to do this? And yet I really felt like this needs to be done. And so it doesn't matter if it's not the perfect setup. Um, I'm going to do, do it. Yeah. Yeah, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. And and speaking about doing, I mean, you started this, and in a way, you took it was something a little bit risque in the Orthodox world back when you started. A woman appearing in videos, often talking about taboo topics that nobody really was maybe openly addressing in such media. What was the reaction? Was there any resistance? Any criticism? Those um, first days, early days. Um, like occasionally, like sometimes I would get a message from someone like, you know, why are you wearing nail polish? And I'm like, seriously, like my nail polish is bothering you and you're on the internet right now. Like there's maybe some more, you know, racy stuff than my nail polish on the internet. Um, and so, yeah, so occasionally, you know, I would get, um, you know, comments from people like that, but honestly, um, like 
anything that you do, anything that you do is going to cause um, some sort of pushback um, and sort of, and the problem is that like the internet opens up all sorts of nastiness and it's really, you know, people that have issues with themselves get sort of a free and anonymous space to, um, you know, give someone else a hard time. Right. So, um, you know, I, I had sort of, well, a couple of stories. One was um, this anonymous blogger was, you know, kind of giving me a hard time at one point. Um, and I think like me and he also like made like some negative comments about my and Bialik. And I wrote to him, I was like, until you, I said, you're throwing shadow, you're throwing punches from the shadows. Mm. I said, I said, come out from your hiding place and show your face and then you can make your, you know, your negative right. comments. But I said, you're a coward who's hiding behind, you know, anonymity. And like we actually show our faces and put our names on real things. This guy never bothered me again because, you know, I had, um, you know, really shut him up. Right. Um, and then um, I came to a discovery a few years ago that um, even Moshe Rabbeinu had haters. Um, you know, here he was appointed by God himself to lead the Jewish people. Um, and Korach, you know, yes. comes out and tries to stir people up against him. Why? Because he's jealous, as mm -hmm. you know, most of the haters online are. Um, and what I realized, you know, once I sort of looked at that story and compared it to, you know, what we deal with on the internet or modern day leadership is that and Torah is trying to tell us that with leadership comes dissent, with leadership comes jealousy. This is just the formula of what leadership looks like. And once I recognize that the Torah is telling me that this is the package, then I I could stop worrying. I could say to myself, um, I want to make sure that what I do is respected and respectable to people that I respect. And I respect a wide range of people. I have people, you know, to the left of me, to the right of me. Um, and I, you know, I bounce ideas off of people. I get feedback. I have advisors. So um, I need to make sure the people that I consider sane and normal in the world, mm -hmm. you know, are okay with, you know, my approach and what I'm doing. Um, and if the crazies, you know, and the jealous people can't handle it, well, you know, that's their problem. And so you have to be willing to kind of understand that, you know, there's people that are, um, you know, you're never going to see eye to eye. Um, and Lipa Schmelzer, actually, who's, you know, no um, stranger to dissent and to, you know, controversy, um, told me that, it, really like a great finish, that Mordechai goes and saves the Jewish people. You know, that's kind of a big deal. Um, right. And it says in the Megillah after he saved them, and most of them held of him. So, like, it was also just like this, whoa, like, you know, big idea, like you could literally save people's lives and you'll have people complaining that you didn't save it the way they wanted to be saved. And so, um, so I think, yeah, I'm saying we had, we had some pushback, you know, I never considered anything that we did to be, um, you know, kind of too out there, obviously, or if I wouldn't have done it, I wasn't trying to, um, you know, be crazy edgy. And, you know, the idea was always to do it in a Tzanua way. I mean, even some of the topics that we dealt with, like the whole Nasheed or Mikvah, um, <laughs> you know, the way that we handled the material, we tried to be sensitive and not, you know, um, very explicit with the topic so that, um, you know, people could learn about it, but um, we could still be sensitive to, you know, issues of Tzniyas. And for, with our mikvah um, video, for instance, which has like over 100,000 views, um, I've been told by, you know, people in random mikvahs around the country, you don't know how many women have tried out mikvah for the first time because they saw your video and they called wow. us up. So um, in terms of getting metrics for donors to tell them like well, how our content is affecting people, it's a huge disaster because, you know, people's lives actually will completely change. They will. We have heard from people years later, like one woman wrote to me on Facebook and she was like, oh, um, 
you know, I need advice on skirts. And I don't always respond to every person that writes to me just because, like, I literally don't know, like, if it's a lunatic. But I decided to respond to this woman. Um, and then after she asked me about skirts, she's like, oh, by the way, my daughter and I are religious now because of your videos. We're moving to, you know, a Jewish community next month. And I'm like, oh, well, thanks for <laughs> letting me know. That that would have been helpful, you know, to kind of offer that feedback sooner. But um, that's kind of, you know, that's – I started this in order to, you know, give people that information. And it's so wonderful to hear when people feel inspired enough to, you know, make changes and, you know, um, adopt a, a Torah observant lifestyle. And then they, you know, talk about how meaningful their lives are right now. That's just such a wonderful thing to hear. But a lot of people, like, it doesn't occur to them to ever actually, like, write in and let you know, oh, by the way, you changed my life. So, right, right. I mean, did, did you aspire it at the beginning to become what it's become today? I mean, it is, you are changing lives. I mean, and the amount of content and the, the brand and the, 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 the rebranding that you've done for Jewish Orthodoxy, it's, it's something unparalleled. Did you, did you think it would get to this point? Um, I mean, when my husband first asked me when I started, like, what, you know, kind of, when will you know that you've made it? I told them I wanted to be on the Tonight Show, um, so like I haven't done that yet, so I don't know if I consider it a success yet. <laughs> um, meaning like, you know, I think I'm kind of a person that kind of has the the opinion, you know, go big or go home. So I certainly didn't start this to um, not be successful. Um, it's it's hard to un- sort of measure, measure where success right. is. Um, certainly, when I go out, um, I don't have any anonymity. Like pretty much everywhere I go. Um, in the Jewish space, at least people, um, you know, know who I am and know where I live. And so that's kind of a weird thing because there's like, I sort of, um, romanticized fame when I was a child. And then when you're living in, you know, in fame or whatever, how how much fame I've achieved. And like, I'm trying to yell at my kid in public. And then I realize that everybody knows who I am. Then suddenly like, Oh, that's kind of a downside of fame. Um, so (laughs) I mean, I, um, I, I, Ultimately, like I, I can see what our numbers are for our, you know, site traffic. I can see our following growing, but like we don't have all the stories. Like it would be so wonderful if, you know, we could see the, you know, we had over half a million people on our website last year. It would be so wonderful if we had like, you know, over half a million stories or, or maybe, maybe, you know, half a million weren't uh, deeply touched, maybe over only uh, 50,000 were, you know, or 25,000. But like, still, that's huge. Like, think about like a Jewish center that, or even 10,000, maybe 10,000 of the half a million people were deeply touched, but we don't actually have access to all those stories. So right. um, it's a little bit frustrating to, on one hand, see reach and see numbers growing. And on the other hand, it's only every so often someone will actually write in um, with a story. And when they do, thank God, it's an amazing story um, and it's stories all over the world. But um, it's really a bit of a frustration to not actually because like you don't do something like this to become rich. Um, and as I noted, like the fame part of it is actually kind of a, a weird and challenging um, side effect that um, sort of doing it in real life is actually um, less pleasant than you. I certainly imagined it would be. Um, so really what I do this for is to, you know, is to give Jews that feeling that I have um, and that blessing that I have. So, um, you know, every story that we hear is is really like, you know, quote unquote payment or, you know, the, the schar uh, for, yeah. for the efforts. But um, a lot of people never think to talk about, you know, how 
watching these videos is what, you know, I was in uh, South Carolina a couple of years ago and this woman came up to me and said she was raised conservative but couldn't stand the orthodox and she was in a working in a hospital in kind of the middle of nowhere South Carolina and she started watching our videos and suddenly like a light bulb went off like we're going to become more observant um we can become observant and have these spiritual lives and not become extremists and she told her husband and she moved her family to a Jewish community um and suddenly they're going to a from school and a from shul and mikvah and shabbos and but like I only got that story when I went to South Carolina. Like she never, you know, right. shared it with me before that. So, um, so and that same thing happened when I spoke in Sydney, Australia. So, um, it's like if I have to like literally travel around the world to hear each story, that's going to take a long time. So, um, <laughs> I have to well, figure out a way to, yeah, right. And I guess also it has to do with the fact that maybe these transformations are very nuanced and multifaceted in a way that you might you may have opened one door, uh, you know, like a light bulb went on, but then, you know, three months prior they met somebody at a JCC meeting and like they start putting the pieces together for sure. So no, it's hard to distill. Oh, it was because you and your website. Right. It was it was an amalgam of 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 experiences of which people like you had a big part or people like me, you know, like, so I, I see what you're saying, but it's very hard for a person to distill. Oh, what was that? You know, that moment. moment. Right. No, look, for some of them that come to the talk or write the letter, they I think they are able to. I mean, you know, we can't do the in-person like follow up once the light bulb goes off, then they're going to need to go to their local, you know, from community or Chabad or whatever it is, and mm -hmm. then start doing the, the hard work. And I never intended that we would do that piece of it. I just wanted to be sort of the initial piece of information to sort of change people's perceptions. And then once they were equipped with that knowledge, um, then, you know, hopefully they could find the resources themselves or if not, you know, write to us and ask for it. So right. yes, for sure, for sure. It's not, um, watch a Jew in the city video and then like poof, the person's religious. There's all the hard work <laughs> that goes into it afterwards. But I'm saying at least, I'm saying at least to, you know, have someone, you know, let us know that I saw the Orthodox community so differently. And then after, you know, interacting with your content, it changed my perception. It caused me to start learning. And then, you know, X, Y, Z happened. You know, um, that, it, yeah. it what you're saying it actually just reminded me that um i told my children earlier this year i was reading a few articles on how much the lavavitcher rabbi appreciated good news just 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 people coming back to him and writing or writing back with good news and i said to my kids you know what it is so important like we not to just communicate, you know, the the look to our leaders for guidance on when things are not going great, but you know, let's share the successes and the, the communicate the 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 good. So if anybody listen, listening, you know, has been following you in the city for years and something touched them and really just <laughs> drop that email, like just say it, communicate it, you know, <laughs> fill <Thank> fill you. <laughs> Allison's bucket, <laughs> as my friend would Thank say. You, it is it is really important. And and you've done a tremendous, a beautiful job of doing it. Um, but um, yeah, that's a very important um, thing. Now you mentioned your husband, and he asked you at the beginning, you know, how, when when will you know you've made it? You've, Allison, you've treated this. I, I believe you you treat it as a business. You run it as a business. At what point did this happen? Was this intentional from the beginning, or is that something that you know? After the wheels were turning, you were like, okay, I need, I really need, this is not more than a, just a passion project. 
I mean, I didn't have a business background or a nonprofit background. Um, I did not start this with a business plan, with seed money. I really started with an idea. Um, my husband was in his last year of law school. Mm-hmm. Um, I was the sole breadwinner of the family. I was expecting our third child. Um, and I said to him, I don't know, like, you know, how I'm going to fund this or really even what I'm doing because. I was creating a social media organization, but social media had barely been invented yet. Mm-hmm. So um, it was sort of like I was—I didn't realize what I was kind of jumping onto, but I, I saw that through YouTube, there was now a chance for people to have a direct conversation with other people in a bigger way, and I knew that there was a power to that because, you know, if I could change people's minds one-on-one over a coffee or on a plane ride, then I could do that on a mass level. So um, it was. Definitely um, hard to create a social media organization before social media was invented. Um, and try selling that to someone. I'm saying like, what kind of investors are you going right. to get? The the platform, you know, hasn't even like rolled out yet. Um, so I didn't know sort of the business side of it when I started. But what I basically said was, um, I don't have any of these things worked out, but I think I can change the world. Do you mind if we, you know, go into some debt and take out more student loans? Wow. Um, while I figure this out. And um, they told me that my orthodox husband would subjugate me um, before I became from. Uh, <laughs> but instead, he said to me, you know, go after your dreams. And so um, we got ourselves into a good amount of debt because I would be um, working for free day after day and paying a babysitter to watch my babies as I was having more babies in the middle of all this. And I would go to the bank account on Friday to go pay the babies, uh, babysitter uh, to the, you know, the ATM machine rather, um, and sort of see our bank account getting smaller and smaller and say to myself, you are a lunatic. Like you need to quit. You need to get a real job. This doesn't make any sense. Um, and yet I kept sort of telling myself, what are you going to tell Hashem? Like when you get to Shemayim, like he's going to tell you, like, you know, I gave you the ability to have a presence. I gave you this, powerful story of searching for meaning you had all that and you were afraid about not having a big enough bank account wow uh, so i i stuck with it um and i think things really turned a corner with our first all-stars event in 2012 um before that i was kind of just like a crazy lady on my couch you know making different videos and with our first all-stars video suddenly we had a u.s senator that was you know part of our video content and a new york times best-selling novelist um faye uh, kellerman and mm-hmm. um i think that was sort of the next level and we had a party to celebrate that and the wall street journal came and covered it and um my best friend was like no offense but um we kind of didn't think this was going anywhere until now <laughs> so i was like thanks um so um, even at that point though, like we, we then got a fiscal sponsor. Um, and so we had an ability to collect donations through, you know, a, a nonprofit that was lending us their nonprofit status. But, um, the idea of having to raise money for a living, um, was a, a horrible, you know, just to, to, that I would wake up every day and have to say, tzedakah, tzedakah, like it just seemed so unappealing. I was really raised that like you work for your money and you earn money. Um, but what I did do was I kept getting people asking me to speak. So at first I thought I'm not a speaker. I don't know how to speak. Um, but then I kind of like got over that and said, well, maybe if I speak, I'll become a speaker. So I stuck a speaking button on my page on the website and suddenly speaking engagement started pouring in. So I started, you know, eking out a a living like that. Um, and you know, I would raise a little bit of money here and there to sort of like, you know, update our website and make some videos. Um, and then, 
thank God, um, two and a half years ago, we got sort of our, our major, our first major funding. We got our first um, six-figure gift from um, a couple of donors, um, and that kind of took us to the next level. Um, and another sort of interesting hashgacha practice moment. They were interested particularly in our our ex Hasidic work. Um, mm-hmm. In uh, 2014, um, I was approached by some ex Hasidim at a, an outreach talk in Muncie, and they said um, we were raised ultra Hasidish. That meant after 10 years old, I stopped playing ball. After 13 years old, I stopped secular studies. I can't live like that anymore. Um, can you help us be from like you? We we don't want to leave observance, but we can't stay where we were. So this was um, really like an eye opener for me because I had been hearing from some ex Hasidim up until that point, but no one had come to me sort of believing me that my life was real. Instead, the feedback I was getting was, this is lies, this is whitewashing, this is not orthodoxy. And that wasn't true. It actually was completely orthodoxy. And um and I, I haven't just stuck into my circles. You know, I have friends in Chabad. I have Yeshivish friends. I have some Hasidic right. friends. Like, so, like, from my perspective, you know, we were giving a pretty, you know, accurate picture of a range of Orthodox communities mm-hmm. and you know, portraying the Orthodox world as thinking people, kind people, you know, people living with meaning, trying to make the world a better place, um, people that get to choose to live how they live. But the people that were coming to us that were complaining were people that had been forced into their observance, were people that had been, you know, made scared um, if they stepped out of line, people that, you know, were raised that anyone different than them, you know, was going straight to hell, um, people really that had been limited in terms of what they can do, even if it was, you know, technically allowed, but their community didn't do it. So the engagement I had with these people at first was very negative, but this couple that came to my talk said, we believe you and we'd like to live like this. Can you help us? And even though it was never anything that I intended to do, mm-hmm. um, and even though um, I don't really speak Yiddish, uh, <laughs> I felt like, well, don't I want to give Jews like the blessing of living a life of meaningful Torah and mitzvot? And if they weren't getting that where they came from, um, don't I have an obligation to share with them the beauty of, of being religious? Um, so this initial couple that approached me, I got interrupted after their question, and when I looked up, they were gone. And so oh, no. I, felt, I felt horrible that I lost the lost couple. And I, on the way home, I started calling people at different Jewish organizations, and I kind of flagged for them. I think this is an issue. I think there might be people that have been raised in extreme situations. And I want to just clarify that when I say extreme, I don't mean that anyone ultra-Orthodox or Haredi or Hasidic or Yeshivish is extreme. What I mean is that there are extreme families or groups within these communities that are being raised in unhealthy and dysfunctional ways. And I think those are the people that, by and large, we're seeing, you know, who have such negative uh, feedback about Orthodoxy. Um and when I put this out there, I got feedback from, you know, people like, uh, we can't, you know, who's going to pay for this? And this is really controversial and, you know, kind of, it's kind of a crazy idea, Alice. And mm-hmm. so I, I kind of, um, that was sort of my aha moment. I thought I had aha moment and it just sort of seemed too big. It seemed like sort of like, I don't even know how to begin to take this on. And so I guess I'll just stay busy trying to, you know, reach the other 90% of Jews that could keep me busy for a while. Um, And so nine months later, I had a second aha moment. And this time I did not, I did not drop it. This time I said, I approached my board and I said, we are doing something. Um, I read a blog post about a woman that was raised in Curious Yoel. And she was from like one of the most right-wing families of one of the most right-wing communities in the world. And um, she 
got divorced and left Curious Hill with her son to just move into like mainstream Muncie and she couldn't make it. For three years, she tried to get her son into yeshiva and they didn't want an ex-Hasidish, uh, quote-unquote, uh, Yiddish-speaking, quote-unquote, on his way down kid so he couldn't get into Jewish school. Oy, uh, the neighbors didn't want to have him for Shabbos. Nobody invited them and they were so lonely. She eventually started paying a neighbor to play with her son on Shabbos. And after... Uh, three years of basically feeling like garbage that nobody wanted. She said to heck with these people. Mm-hmm. She picked up and she went to footsteps. She left observance. Um, and I realized in that moment, oh, so we built footsteps. We built an organization for people that want to leave the Haredi world and become secular. Um, and how did we build it? We built it by not caring and not being inclusive and not saying, you know, I will I'll make room for you at my Shabbos table. I'll make room for you at my school. You're a fellow Jew. And if you want access to my right. world, I will help you feel comfortable here. We couldn't do that. We had we were too suspicious. Um, and so that pushed me over the edge. And I said to our board, we're taking this on. Now, once again, I had no business plan. I had no seed <laughs> <laughs> money. Um, I just felt like this is a major problem. Like, because by saying positive things about the Orthodox world, I had been sort of uh, raising the ire of this community for a while. But I understood why there was so much ire because the people that were raised in these unhealthy, dysfunctional ways were really, they, they were raised. I met a woman who on 9-11, as the soot was collecting in her school in Brooklyn in her base Yaakov, they gathered the girls into the auditorium and told them, you knock down those buildings with your skirt lengths. What? Um, Yes, this is this oh. is what we're dealing with. This is what is going on. So for the people that it's not working out for. So um, we can't just sit back and let someone think that that's Judaism, that that's abuse. Um, and so yeah, let's I, say that again for listeners. We this is not Judaism. <laughs> and this is not orthodoxy. Is. This is just a minority of a minority of, min- of a minority, but it happens sadly. <laughs> and it's ha- it's happening from educators. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you see the problem the problem unfortunately, I-, I will tell you with full disclosure is that I used to do the this is just a few bad apples line. Mm-hmm. Um, I I believe unfortunately it's it's bigger than that. I don't think it's a majority, it's still a minority, but I don't think it's a small minority. Um, and that's a very sad thing for someone who has spent her, you know, her career um, touting the positives of the Orthodox community. And it doesn't mean that I don't think that, the Torah itself is still perfect. It doesn't mean that I don't think that there is tremendous beauty and positivity within so much of the Orthodox community. But um, my Rav is a big believer of standing up to what's wrong and and not you know being silent in the face of problems. Um, and so this is sort of how our, our mission has now expanded. Um, we show the beauty, but we have to also acknowledge the challenges and we have to work to to fix the rot and the dysfunction at its root. Because until we do, see, surprise, surprise, it's the very same things that make the negative headlines are the very same things that push these people away. And mm-hmm. it's not Judaism. It's it's something dressed up, you know, looking all religious and all from and sounding very, you know, uh, mm-hmm. holy, but it's not. It's actually um, the wolf in sheep's clothing. So um, we need to not be afraid to call it out where we see it and fight against it because I really feel like this is this is the future of, of the Jewish people because we have now a situation where the larger Jewish world sees the religious community by our problems. They see us by the dysfunctional extreme things that are not Judaism. And even we have a, a, you know, a sizable population that believes that these dysfunctional unhealthy things are Judaism. So 
for people that lead with goodness and kindness and um, non-judgment, um, we need to make our voices louder and not just sort of stand idly by um, as extremists, you know, kind of make all the noise and make all the headlines. We have to really um, take, you know, sort of take back the brand and um, and take back the noise because, you know, the crazy people make a lot of noise, unfortunately. So, um, so that's now, so I wrote a blog post about, you know, these two stories. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing is that the couple that I lost I then found the guy wrote to me and said, oh, that was me. And I said, great, oh, wow. Shabbos. Yeah, so I came for Shabbos. Thank God they're doing great. Um, and then we had a couple of people step forward and say they wanted to help us spearhead our effort, which was perfect because I actually had no capacity to do anything new. So we had these uh, volunteers that really helped us establish, you know, sort of the, the basic foundation of Project Makholm. And then after about a year and a half of us, you know, kind of doing some basic groundwork for you know, getting this started, um, we got our first major gifts that we'd ever gotten. And this now fueled our organization to be at a whole other level where now we have paid staff and quarterly board meetings and budget meetings and, hmm. you know, strategic fundraising plans. And um, so we were not really operating so much like a business before that, but um, really taking on this project that people warned me, you don't have the capacity to do, you don't have the experience to do. Um, but again, it was under that sort of initial mission that I had that I wanted people to see the beauty, you know, of a Torah observant life that I had gotten to appreciate. Um, that, you know, is really what, that was that, again, a Hashkacha process moment that I didn't let go of the second time. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's really how we have gotten to a, a whole other level today. And, you know, our budget right now, we're in about three and a, Three, three $350,000, I'm going to say it like that. It wasn't making sense. I was saying it before. $350K budget per year. But please, God, um, you know, I expect in the coming years to, you know, grow by t- 10 times that. I, I believe will be a $3 million plus budget um, in the coming years with sort of the amount of work that we have kind of uh, decided to undertake. And it's definitely terrifying um, to think about raising that amount of money and, managing a staff that large but at the same time um if you asked me a few years ago if we would be where we are today i would have said no way i can't imagine doing that i don't know how to do that right. and so thank god here we are so so what kind of services does project Malcolm offer so we um we begin our, our programming begins at you in the city so on our platforms at you in the city we are literally reteaching people that had a bad experience with the orthodoxy healthy and happy and positive and meaningful orthodoxy. Um, And so for some people, they never actually contact us. They just see our content and they make the changes themselves. So for instance, I was at the YU graduation a few years ago um, and I saw this family with payas and double head coverings and beaming faces. And I was quite curious how this ended up happening. And I wrote to um, our Project Malcolm group um, I know a lot of you do not have family support, but there's someone here today that does. So you should just know that there's goodness in the world somewhere happening. Guy writes back, oh, that's my friend. I'll introduce you. He introduces me to the friend. Mm-hmm. And the friend says to me, I want to thank you for all your Jew in the City videos. I watched them back when I was in my summer yeshiva. I said, really? <laughs> that's mm-hmm. surprising. Mm-hmm. Wasn't expecting these videos yeah. to reach for. Um, and I said, can I ask you, did they happen to impact you? He said, a thousand percent. I was miserable where I was. I went online to see what else was out there. Oh, gosh. I discovered I discovered another way to be from, and I went out and got it. 
And so, um, again, he never told me that story. <laughs> no one ever tells me stories <laughs> until we find them. But um, so that was sort of a way for us to see that part of those, you know, hundreds of thousands of hits that we're getting are people in this community that are living with an abusive and extreme kind of Judaism and then can find something that's more balanced and more integrated. But then for people that need our help, they're contacting us on our website, projectmalcolm.org, um, and they can sign up for um, – Shabbos placement. Um, we run monthly events, which are Torah classes, which are social events, which are career-based classes. Um, we um, offer support groups, which are not housed under our organization because we're not um, a uh, mental health organization, but um, we partnered with Amudim, um, and they're offering the support groups specifically for our people there because what we've discovered is that all of our participants are coming from trauma. All of mm-hmm. them are trauma And so um, as we reintroduce uh, a positive and healthy Judaism to them, we also need to consider the fact that they've gone through some serious struggles. Um, And we have a WhatsApp group that's very active. You know, they just, when they come to our organization, they thought that they were like alone in the universe and there was no one else like them. And then they discover that there's, you know, so many other people. So in just a year, we start off with an intake where they sign up on the website and then we call them up and make sure we're looking for sort of a certain base level of healthiness. If someone's spiraling out of control, homeless, jobless, doesn't have food, we're sending them to social services. We're, we're not taking that on. It's not a religious issue. They need to just get their lives stabilized so that they're just having basic stability of surviving. Right. And, right. and once they have that stuff in order, then they can come to us and we can help them build community and we can help them explore different communities, you know, that are out there and we can help them relearn Judaism and, um, you know, get mentored by, you know, um, you know, someone who wants to be their friend. So, um, they come to our group. So we're about 15 months into our intake process where we're screening and we're kind of doing this higher level and we're already up to 110 members. Um, and that's, you know, turning people away as well. So, um, we've i think we're just scraping scraping the tip of the iceberg here so it's Amazing. um it's definitely overwhelming but we're we're doing it doing <laughs> <laughs> and what about jewish all-stars how do we get to nominate tell us about that's that's always an exciting thing to look forward to every year so um we one of the stereotypes that i wanted to break down because jew in the city really started off as a, a platform to break down stereotypes about orthodox jews so that misconception I mentioned before about the woman that wanted to become religious but you know wasn't allowed to work. Right. Um, that was one thing that I grew up with a lot. And the other thing was um, kind of see like Orthodox men in beards and hats and just assume they're all rabbis. So maybe also diamond dealers. But other than that, <laughs> lacking the understanding that Orthodox men can have all sorts of jobs. So I thought I wanted to make a video showing that women can work and that men can have all sorts of jobs. And then I thought once I make such a video, I should show people like at the tops of their fields to really show that like observance doesn't have to hold you back. So I thought like I'm going to make a video video with like Joe Lieberman and I want to do like, you know, a Supreme Court clerk and a Rhodes Scholar and um, – and so I put together this video with mm-hmm. the MacBeats and Faye Kellerman and Tamir Goodman and really just a bunch of people that were extremely successful in their profession. Um, and we called it the Orthodox Jewish All-Stars. And really the idea was that although they achieved great success, what really makes them an all-star is their conviction, is that they rose to the top but didn't forget who they were and mm-hmm. compromised their, their Judaism. And really like it's partially a shallow premise um, that success and or fame gets people excited. So I'll fully admit that, you know, um, part of our hook for the all-stars is just sort of um, 
appealing to people's shallow side. Um, but then once they're listening, our formula is now we're going to tell you what actually matters. And what matters is living with conviction. What matters is, you know, living a spiritual life and a life that has depth and not just living, you know, to get your name higher up on, you know, a chart somewhere. So, um, our all-stars last year included the treasurer of Ford Motor Company. Um, we've had Joyce Azria, who's yeah. the director of BCBG, Max Azria's daughter. Um, we had the um, Emmy-winning producer of Modern Family, Alana Wernick. Um, we've had some really, you know, top winners of science. Um, we had Sky Barry Simon, who won the Poincaré Prize, which is like the top honor you can get in mathematical physics. I don't even know what he's talking about half the time when he talks about <laughs> such another level, but like, um, here this like Torah believing and Torah observing Jew, um, you know, got this top prize in science. So, um, we, we do a video, we do a series of videos of the all-stars, um, and we throw this gala party about every year and a half. So we are in the middle of all-star nominations. Um, we close them out at the end of April, God willing. Um, and then we'll start our deliberations and, you know, please God, um, we will be having a party in, uh, 2019 will be our next party. Um, but you have a couple weeks that you can still nominate someone on jewinthecity.com. You can see at the top of our website, it says nominate an all-star. Um, we had 500 people at our party last year in Manhattan. Wow. Uh, and the feedback that we got, and here I could actually hear feedback because people, their faces were right in front of me. So they actually got to tell me face-to-face things like, I've never felt so proud to be from. I've never Aww. felt so good to be Jewish. Because really the program that we run is this very tight program where each all-star does like a two-minute video and then like a one-minute speech. And it's really just these poignant and funny moments of them talking about you know, the blessing that came into their life, the conviction that they stuck with, um, and sort of the way that they've been respected by their colleagues in their fields for, you know, sort of sticking to who they believe and ultimately how Jewish observance is not a liability. In fact, it is, a, you know, a value add to their lives. And I think a lot of times in sort of Jewish schools or sort of the messaging that the kids get is like everyone needs to be, you know, a Holy Rebbetzin or Rosh Yeshiva, and those are wonderful things to do, but not everybody's cut out for that. So for us to offer sort of the the Yosef model or the Rambam model yes. of, you know, sort of be at the top of being your Being in the world. Being in the world, but, um, you know, kind of cling to who you are. Mm -hmm. um, it's a really important model to put forth. Um, and, you know, again, I, I get so much joy out of um, making people feel proud of Jewish observance and positive about it. So it's really, um, it's just an incredible evening of Kiddush Hashem. Amazing. Sounds amazing. Allison, let's do some JLP fill in the blanks to wrap it up. And this is a part of the show where I'll give you an open-ended sentence and you'll finish it with the first thing that comes to mind, okay? Let's try it. I'm Allison Josephs and I feel most spiritual when... <sighs> Uh, Shabbos is pretty good. I'm mm -hmm. a fan of Shabbos. <laughs> Me too. I don't know how I ever lived without it, to be honest. Now it's like, nobody touch my Shabbos, please. My favorite mitzvah or one I feel most connected with is? I also like mikvah. I think it's also a beautiful, um, it's a beautiful mitzvah. I know some women struggle with it, but um, I'm a big fan. Hmm. Yeah, it's a hard one, but uh, it's it's very nice that you connect to that one. Um, I've, I've heard that before. Um Wow, powerful. My fondest, sweetest Jewish memory is... Oh, gosh, these are hard. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> my 
fondest Swedish Jewish memory is. Um, I mean, maybe the first time that I said Shimona Esrei completely. I had gotten my first sitter um, on a summer trip to Israel when I was 16. Mm-hmm. And I was sort of breaking my teeth to say the whole Shimona Esrei yes. in Hebrew. And maybe by the end of like three and a half weeks, um, I got my first full Shimona Esrei down. So that was kind of a special, a special moment to be able to daven like that. Yeah, I can tell. Totally, totally, totally relate. Something I wished I'd learned about Judaism growing up is that Judaism is uh, a roadmap for a meaningful life. That that we have a purpose here. That was really my, my biggest struggle as a child. That nothing seemed to actually add up by the time life was over. When I give tzedakah, I like to give to. Um, I'm a big fan of Jewish education, so um, we're big supporters of uh, of my seminary, Darchei Noam, and uh, Midrash Rachel Chappelle's. Mm-hmm. Beautiful, beautiful. And finally, I'm Allison Josephs, and today I'm most grateful for life. I wake up every day, and um, I can't believe I get another day here. Um, I really, when well, obviously life has challenges, but um, really every day that I'm healthy and I have my beautiful family and you know community and career that I care so much about. Um, it's just life is a blessing. Wow. Allison, you're just wonderful. Thank you so much for doing this. Everyone, Allison is at JewInTheCity.com. And don't forget, if you want to nominate somebody for the Jewish All-Stars, you can do it right there and um, explore that website in depth because there is a lot of very helpful, useful and humorous content. So you'll find it and subscribe to your newsletter. You have a weekly newsletter, don't you? We have a weekly newsletter we do. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, Allison, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Thanks so much. Thanks to Allison Josephs for stopping by. Her website is jewinthecity.com. And the new project serving those Jews who need help finding a new path within a Torah-observing way of life is Project Makom. And you can find it at projectmakom.org. You can find Allison all over social media as at Jew in the City. If you want to nominate anyone for the Jewish All-Stars, well, I hate to say it, but run with capital letters to jewinthecity.com and click on the Nominate an All-Star button today because nominations end today, April 30th, 2018. I hope you enjoyed the show and tell me what you thought about it. I know this one can be thought-provoking, so I'd love to hear. I guess online media in the Orthodox world must be on my mind since the past few weeks consecutive we've had such incredible orthodox women with a strong voice and presence online we had Mara Strom of kosher on a budget we had Nikki Schreiber of humans of Judaism Allison Josephs of Jew in the city today and next week I get to welcome the editor of the jewishwoman.org an extension of chabad.org Hannah Weisberg until then if you haven't caught up on those episodes I highly recommend you do and go leave a rating and review Let me know what you think. I love reviews and so does iTunes. It's good for the show's iTunes ranking. We want to make sure everyone finds the show and reviews is the way iTunes determines that this is a show worth putting up in the recommendations when people are searching for Jewish content. Until then, have a great week. Thanks for listening to Jewish Latin Princess Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes. Leave a rating and share the podcast with the Jewish women you love. To access today's show notes, ask Yael a question, or suggest a uniquely talented Jewish woman to be featured on the show, visit jewishlatinprincess.com.